This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Have you checked how long ago our last episode was? I haven't. I think it might have been February. Oh, that's pretty good. I, I maybe thought it was longer than that. Thanks to the fans who have requested us to come back. By fans, I mean Zoha asked me when we were going to do another one. Yeah, Tom Tom did the same. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Thank you to Zoha and Tom. And to be honest, we have wanted to come back. It just hasn't been possible. For those of you who um, have messaged us on Instagram and stuck with us through this prolonged break, thank you so much. <laughs> Shout out to you guys also. And if you're new to the party, we have a bunch of episodes. I think this is like our 21st episode. So if you feel That's like crazy. checking us out. Should we do our hello and welcome? Yeah. We got our intro. And then, then what do we do? We say hi. <laughs> we say hi. Hello. Hello. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Good to uh, speak to you, the listener. So what is it that we're going to talk about today, Maya? Great question. For a grand return and thinking of the greater sociopolitical systems of the world, today we're going to be talking about abortion. Are you, ex- are you excited? <laughs> let's just rip off the band-aid let's then. Let's go. It. I'm ready. Um, tell me, Tell me about abortion. I will tell you about abortion. So it is worth mentioning that like we are talking about the Dobbs ruling, which overturned Roe v. Wade and made it so that abortion is no longer a constitutional right in the United States. And um, we obviously, as people who are believers in health care and equity and a lot of other issues in particular around sexual and reproductive health and women's rights, feel very strongly that that's bullshit. So (laughs) here we are. Anyway, with that being said. I'm going to tell you about the name abortion and what we're talking about when we say it. An abortion is the intentional termination of a human pregnancy. That's important because we're differentiating inducing the end of a pregnancy rather than like a miscarriage or a stillbirth. And the word abortion comes from the Latin where ab means away from or amiss and oriri means to be born or originate. So you put them together and you get abariri, which I feel strongly we should be calling abortion. Abariri. Abariri. Yeah. This seems to have emerged as a word in like the 14 or 1500s. And for a long time, it sort of referred to everything across the board, miscarriages, premature births, and actual abortion. Um, But by the 1800s, there was an effort to differentiate between the concept of an abortion and a miscarriage. However, that was more around the point in your pregnancy that you were at, like how many months pregnant versus if it was actually like deliberately conducted or not. So at this point in English, a deliberate abortion was actually called a criminal abortion, which gives you a good sense of our starting point in terms of uh, societal perspectives on abortion. Mm -hmm. By the late 1800s, abortion became the terminology for the intentional ending of a pregnancy pretty much as a standalone medical procedure, which is sort of where we are today. Um, because it was illegal in so many places for so long, it was a very taboo term. And I could argue maybe still is a little bit, um, which means that there are a lot of other words that people used instead of saying abortion. And these included feticide, embryoctomy, 
criminal operation in the U.S. or illegal operation in the U.K. Or sometimes it was just replaced by miscarriage, which I think has a lot of like stigma-based things surrounding it. So there are, are two kinds of abortion in the modern day. One is the medical abortion, which is a pill. I think most people know about that. And then a surgical abortion, which is when you need a procedure conducted at a health center. And the main differentiation is usually the duration the woman has been pregnant. It's like, how far are you in your pregnancy? So the pill, it's actually two pills with two different medications. The first is mifepristone, which blocks your body's progesterone. And progesterone is really necessary for a healthy pregnancy. And then afterwards, you take misoprostol, which I think is the most commonly known like medical name of the pill. And that causes cramping and bleeding and empties out your uterus, very similar to having a period. And you can usually access a pill-based abortion through 11 weeks of pregnancy. You can also get a uterine aspiration at that time, which is sort of like a vacuum. And that takes about five minutes. It does not need anesthesia, super basic procedure. It can be done through the first trimester if the patient wants to do a procedure in the facility. After the first trimester, you would need a surgical abortion, and that's done using a suction device on a dilated cervix, and it's conducted past 14 weeks. There are a lot of reasons why a person with a uterus could seek out an abortion. Probably the most commonly discussed is that they simply do not want to be pregnant anymore, which is an extremely valid reason for wanting one. Um, There can be a variety of reasons why somebody might feel that way. And I think I've already said it, and I'll probably say it a bunch more time, but on this podcast, we firmly believe that somebody who is pregnant can and should be able to just decide that they don't want to be pregnant anymore. (laughs) Period. There are, however, also a significant amount of medical reasons why a person would need an abortion. Um, Obviously, maternal health being a really big part of that. So if a fetus is not viable, like it wouldn't grow to term or it would be born stillborn. Um, or if pregnancy might kill the mother. There are issues with things like ectopic pregnancies where the egg grows on the outside of the uterus and it requires surgical removal. That would require an abortion, same, same. There are serious medical conditions across the board where basically the only appropriate treatment is abortion. So a lot of reasons why somebody might need to access one. Like we have a really common perception that abortion is unsafe or I think that's part of the rhetoric that's been put out. And I just think we need to sort of talk about like the mental and physical effects. So when abortions are legal and done safely by gynecological medical professionals, they are very safe. Uh, In fact, in a safe and hygienic environment, they're actually safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. It is literally safer to get abortion than to birth a baby. Uh, So Mm -hmm. for reference, in the United States, the mortality rate from legal abortions is 0.7 per 100,000 procedures. In the United States, maternal mortality rates, so people who died because they were giving birth, was 17.2 per 100,000. So significantly higher. They are, in fact, one of the safest medical procedures in the world. Not to mention that actually maternal mortality rates have been on the rise since the start of the pandemic. True. And are also a exacerbated by socioeconomic factors i think in the uk they were saying that if you are um and here they would they would call it bame so black asian and minority ethnic then you are four times more likely to die than a white woman giving yep that's true in the united states and canada as well and um i think our rates now are the lowest in the u.s they're the lowest in any g20 country like it's just like very bad (laughs) which is 
arguably a whole nother episode, but really interesting. So yeah, let's just sort of agree to start in a point of acknowledging that abortions are safe. So another thing is that I think we frequently hear about like the mental health repercussions of abortions. That's a really big topic of conversation. Uh, studies show that there are basically no negative mental health effects from abortions aside from those that are otherwise associated with having an unwanted pregnancy so obviously there are a number of reasons why somebody might be pregnant and not want to keep that baby not all of those are positive so um, those obviously come with negative mental health impacts but when given the capacity to make decisions for themselves especially in early trimesters most women in one long-term study, it was 99% of women were confident in their decision to have an abortion and had no lingering sense of regret or guilt. In fact, the most emotionally turbulent, turbulent element of receiving an abortion was the social stigma that surrounds it. So of course, everyone will have their own independent individual experiences, but when able to make that choice independently, people felt very positive about it because People usually have a good reason for getting an abortion. Everything that I just said about how like safe and okay getting abortions are and how like people feel confident in their decisions, basically all of that goes out the window when abortion is unsafe. So to define, an unsafe abortion is any abortion done by people who do not have the appropriate medical skill set um, and do not have access to an appropriate sanitary environment or both. And that would include anything from attempting to induce abortion through different medicines or herbs that were not discussed above to using alternative surgical tools, physically attempting to instigate abortion. So a really common visual there, like somebody throwing them down the stairs, really not a nice visual, um, or unclean spaces. So in any of those instances, abortion is super dangerous. Unsafe abortions account for 13% of all maternal deaths worldwide. So that's a lot of people dying because they didn't access a safe abortion. Um, and as of 2018, it seems that about 22,000 people die every year after having an unsafe abortion. And that's largely because of the stigma around abortion. That's probably a significant undercount. Like there's probably a lot more people suffering the repercussions of that right now. And honestly, this was an older estimate, so it's probably much higher than this. But current estimates indicate that 45% of all abortions are unsafe. So nearly half of them. And a third of those were done in the least safe possible conditions. And the point of this really is that when they're made not accessible, abortions can cause death and disability and are like a huge violation of human rights and the rights of women and girls. And it's like a major public health emergency. When they are accessible, all of that goes away. And you might be asking yourself, why are so many abortions unsafe? Great question. There's a lot of reasons. They might have something to do with stigma. They might have to do with finances. Um, they might have to do with geographic access to facilities. But the most important thing that prevents access to safe abortions is the law. So abortion is criminalized in most countries. And we have seen that the more, the rest more restricted access is to safe legal abortions, the more unsafe abortions occur. Right? It doesn't stop people from getting them. It just makes them more dangerous. So when abortions are legally available, death and disability from unsafe abortion is hugely reduced. And it's not that legalizing this medical service is the last step. Like it's not going to solve everything, but it is the first like most important step to, to making like necessary medical treatment for people with uteri available. And we're going to talk a lot about that. 
I would also guess when we're talking about barriers, there is obviously like a religious element that comes into the illegality of them. And if I had to hazard a guess, Angel's probably going to talk about that a little bit. I am. (laughs) So just to close it out, abortions are super common, like really common. Six out of 10 unintended pregnancies end in an abortion. Three out of 10 of all pregnancies, for our best estimate, end in abortion. And they're important medical gynecological service. Regardless of if they're legal or illegal, if somebody wants an abortion, they're going to try and find a way to access one. Um, So the more places that make abortion illegal and inaccessible, the more unsafe abortions will happen. And the more women or people with uteruses will die. So obviously this is a valuable and important medical resource. Very much so. Let me let me give you some historical context. Please. Okay, so for the historical section today, I just want to start off by saying that there is absolutely no way I can do justice to the absolutely massive body of work that's out there concerning abortion in history. And it's also important to acknowledge that unlike our other episodes, abortion is not a disease or an epidemic but a healthcare decision um, that has been criminalized in many parts of the world. And what I found was that it was criminalized particularly from the 19th century, like the mid to late 19th century. So today I'm going to highlight a few historical aspects that I think will interest our listeners and will help us contextualize some of the issues that we're touching on in the present day. First of all, Modern debates over abortion in the West are firmly rooted in Judeo-Christian traditions, as so many fun things are. (laughs) To get us in the mood, I thought we could start with a quote from the Sibylline Oracles, which I'm going to say right now are an extremely unreliable source. It's literary. Um, It's been heavily edited over the years. It was originally written in ancient Greek any time between the years 30 and 250 BC. It's a big range. Big range. We think it was written by a Hellenistic Jew, and then it was heavily, heavily edited by later Christian writers and thinkers. So the quote is, Those who defiled their flesh with vicious acts, and who undid the belt of maidenhood and secret union, who their unborn load aborted or cast out the child once born unlawfully, Witches and poisoners, them too the wrath of heavenly deathless God shall fasten to the pillar, where a stream of quenchless fire flows round. Which is <laughs> probably the most extreme perspective you're going to hear today, and it doesn't sound like it was particularly representative of what was going on at the time, but I just thought it it was just such a neat way of getting all of these different themes in into one <laughs> into one quote so that now I can basically pick it apart. Can I just point out that most Jewish traditions actually support abortion and Judaism doesn't think that life... Be- Are you going to talk about that? Uh, not specifically, so please okay. go for it. Actually, in Judaism, life does not begin at conception. And traditionally, I think that the baby is water in the womb until about a month before you give birth. Mm-hmm. And so their definition of life is about preserving and prioritizing existing life. So like pretty much most, like not just super progressive, like most of Judaism is pro reproductive rights and healthcare, and like mm-hmm. does not forbid abortion at all. That's the thing. And you'll see this throughout my section, like the attitudes towards abortion and towards like maternal welfare and 
for example, uh, whether the soul exists from conception or later, that changes throughout the history and depending on what region you're talking about. And you kind of have to wonder whose sources have survived. Is it just that Mm. sources have survived because they were selected because of their misogyny or because because they were more hardline because they helped to support particular points that were later taken forward yeah i think i think a lot of what survives has been kind of like curated um Mm -hmm. but because there are so many sources like you do also see a little bit of variety so we're gonna we're gonna get into that i wanted to start with the ancient world because we always start with the ancient world it's our very own tradition we love the ancient world with just like some attitudes towards abortion and some mentions of uh, of how it should could be done. Uh, so in ancient Egypt, you have the Ebers Papyrus, which dates back to 1550 BC, which recommends honey and crushed dates introduced vaginally to end pregnancy. And then in China, about 4,500 years ago, uh, you have the first documented abortifacients for them, which involve the use of herbs or mercury. Uh, And now the Greeks. We've been waiting for the Greeks. (laughs) The consensus seems to be after after some some searching around on the on the Internet and on the uh, Bodleian catalog um, that the ancient Greeks, Romans and Assyrians actually did not consider a fetus to be alive and that abortion was to some extent accepted in Roman Greece. Aristotle wrote and I'm going to quote now, when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. What may or may not be lawfully done in these cases depends on the question of life and sensation, end quote. And Plato wrote, uh, and this is uh, between 428 and 348 BC, the midwives, by means of drugs and incantations, are able to arouse the pangs of labor and, if they wish, to make them milder and to cause to bear those who have difficulty in bearing, and they cause abortions at an early stage if they think them desirable. Then you have Hippocrates around the same time, and Serranus in the 2nd century AD in Rome, um, taught that physical exercise could cause abortion. You could also use uterine massage, wearing a tight belt, (laughs) (laughs) diuretics, enemas, and venesection. In Roman law, there's there's some pushback against abortion um, in the early 200s, but that's pretty much only to protect the rights of the fathers uh, to heirs, which, Gee. yeah, we're going to keep coming back to that, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And the punishment for women found guilty of ending their pregnancies was meant to be exile. And also uh, in the use and abuse of drugs, so it's controlling substances, uh, which is actually that aspect is meant to cover like unintended deaths of pregnant women who um, consumed something for conception as an aphrodisiac or uh, to cause an abortion. And then more on uh, contraceptives and uh, abortifacients in ancient Rome. They were meant to be using silphium, which um, this one article said was harvested to extinction. Wow. Um, and hellebore. <laughs> Hellebore, which is meant to be um, an ingredient in something called abortion wine, which I couldn't quite figure out what that was. Mm. Uh, Hellebore has poisonous constituents and apparently can cause death, which is hilarious because I just bought myself a hellebore. All right. So I wanted to move on to uh, criminal punishment for abortion because I'd say that's one of the main 
focuses of this episode, so a little bit more context on that. It'll surprise no one that the idea of abortion as a criminal act, so the linking of um, abortion and uh, an act punishable by something, can actually be traced back to medieval Europe, um, specifically to the ecclesiastical authorities who insisted that killing a human fetus equals murder, with the big asterisk that this was as long as the unborn child had a recognizably human shape. Okay. So this comes from a jurist called Gratian around 1140. He wrote that the humanity of unborn life was not the immediate result of conception, but rather occurred subsequently, that is, when embryonic existence acquired limbs and human shape with the fusion of an immortal soul. Uh, end quote. And that was apparently early during gestation. Um, sometime between 40 or 80 days, depending on whether it was a boy or girl. And that, I think, comes from Hippocrates. Mm. Should we have mentioned at some point that most fetuses during abortion are just a cluster of cells? Also that, yeah. Okay, great. Definitely. Don't believe those weird abortion protesters that hold those disgusting signs. Because it's literally just a Petri dish. Yes. Okay. Carry on. Yeah, in medieval times, they thought that... Um, male babies quickened at 40 days and that female babies quickened at 80 days that's rude uh and that comes from that comes from the the greeks this idea disseminated all over europe but uh the secular courts in 13th and 14th centuries use this interpretation not to protect unwanted children this is not the interpretation that they had but they actually wanted to punish those who attacked pregnant women and caused a miscarriage so they call that miscarriage by assault. And that granted women who had lost their pregnancy due to an attack the right to press felony charges, even to uh, asking for an execution. I have a couple of questions. First of all, could they not yes. already press charges? And second of all, was this like common enough that this had to be addressed? Apparently. Goodness. Yeah. Because you do see cases of that in, in the common law courts. Um specifically talking now about England from 1200 to 1300. And just to show you, like, the gap between theory and practice is sometimes quite large, but they say 1283 or 1284, I'm guessing it's kind of illegible. Someone is even executed for causing miscarriage by assault. So yeah, England actually goes goes rogue in 1307 and splits off quite a lot from, like, continental Europe when its royal justices, quote, concluded that babies did not possess human quality unless they had been born and were extant in the nature of things, a view colleagues seem to have adhered to with remarkable consistency until 1603. Wow, and they call it the Dark Ages. I mean, come on. Right. And actually, we have this perception of the Middle Ages as being completely run by the church, and I guess you could say indirectly it was a lot of the time, but the ecclesiastical courts actually lost jurisdiction over miscarriage, infanticide, and abortion by 1500, like completely. It was entirely under the purview of the secular courts. Great. Can we bring that back too? That would be great. Yeah. That's the start of a really long rant about the Supreme Court and how secular it in fact is now, so I'm going to not. You see criminal investigations and convictions rise for abortion slash infanticide slash miscarriage. It's all kind of overlapping for people who had terminated pregnancies like before, during, after birth. Uh, but the shift from ecclesiastical to lay jurisdiction actually 
doesn't make the crimes in question any less religiously interpreted because let's remember that people at this time were extremely religious and very much believed in in the immortal soul and and the afterlife and very much believed in like the sanctity of marriage and all this stuff so there are things that are that are like under secular um jurisdiction but that are still very much religiously motivated so let's let's not lose sight of that and then on the continent actually encouraged by protestant ideologies courts decided to go with the theory that the soul was present from the moment of conception making them actually more hardline than the catholic 12th century canonical lawyers and that's that's the difference between um england and the continent during this time something that i've seen a little bit in popular portrayals and that i seem to associate in my own mind is like a link between abortion and witchcraft accusations totally like the old lady you go to for her herbal mixture and exactly yeah and um like scapegoating uh because of like a midwife's intervention in in a pregnancy that that ends in miscarriage or something like that and actually in the sources they're pretty anecdotal so far maybe it's just a matter of like i didn't i didn't research it for long enough and i i just didn't come across that much i came across this really fun article about what they call uh female sodomy in 16th century bruges about two women who are initially apprehended as horse thieves and then things snowball and the trial becomes about their same-sex relationship and whether one of them is a hermaphrodite and actually has a penis and whether she is like stealing women away from their husbands and taking away from their reproductive potential Mm. and all of the all of the things they're getting up to and in and amongst all of the accusations and uh, the interrogations about their specific sexual practices and they go into it a lot the the woman in question is accused of causing the abortion of her partner but then they just sort of like dismiss that and carry on so i wasn't really sure what to make of that it's called in case anybody wants to look it up a woman like any other female sodomy hermaphroditism and witchcraft in 17th century bruges honestly sounds like a good read (laughs) yeah yeah it really was. It was It was good fun. So yes, I thought that now I would actually look a bit more at the US so that we could tie it into Maya's section a bit more. And I wanted to start by saying that in the American colonies up until the like 19th century, there are no abortion laws, like none whatsoever. Wild, wild west, baby. <laughs> According to a couple of articles I read, Abortion before the 19th century would have been common and only criminal insofar as it was proof of extramarital sex, which was illegal. (laughs) Sex outside of marriage? Illegal. Abortion? Not illegal. Or in the case of harm to the woman. In the context of the U.S., just a little bit of information about how abortions would have been carried out. So you have the herbal remedies from the kitchen garden. These would have been easily accessible to pretty much everybody. You've got savin, tansy, pennyroyal, and all of these herbs were meant to cause menstruation. You could also consult a midwife, or you could get an over-the-counter patented medicine or a douche just from the store, like from your general store. And there were also self-help books. So there was the uh, Handbook of Domestic Medicine, for example, which was published in 1855, which had a section on substances which provoked your uterine bleeding. It didn't specifically refer to abortion, but it was clear what they meant. Like, it was pretty clear what it was. I want a copy of that book. (laughs) 
I will say, though, that in the U.S., abortion was more strictly regulated for enslaved women because they and uh, their children were considered property. So even they were they were um, penalized for even like miscarriage under mysterious circumstances, which like if you're malnourished and and working 14 hours a day, for example, the first U.S. law against abortion was codified in Connecticut in 1821, and that punished anyone who was attempting to cause a miscarriage, whether by providing or taking substances for that purpose. And around this time, male physicians who who were seeking control over reproductive care uh, as they professionalized were the ones to argue against abortion. In 1857, the gynecologist Horatio Storer started the group Physicians Campaign Against Abortion, and this group was specifically to lobby for abortion to be considered not health care, but something evil and detrimental to the health of the woman and the health uh... of the nation. Boo. Boo to that. Sorry, I'm meant to be I'm meant to be non-judgmental, but I'm judging. Um, to make it worse, the Comstock Act of 1873 banned the circulation of quote unquote obscene information through the post in a, in an active attempt to reduce access to information about contraception and sexual health because they realize the um, the link between accessing reproductive care and uh and information about sexual health and contraception why would they want anyone to have that and yet american women continued to seek abortions um leading to unsafe surgical procedures and a lowing, lowering standard of maternal health so the late 20th century <laughs> saw a huge surge in research into the criminalization of abortion and specifically into like abortion in the west and the legal slash moral traditions coming out of, of medieval Europe. And I think this is actually one of the big difficulties of today's episode for me personally. The historiography on abortion is ever increasing and um, I've had to be extremely careful about my sources. Some of the material I read complained about a lack of source material about historical abortion, but I would actually say the opposite. The problem is that there is a lot of information out there and it's really tough to say what is reliable and what is not and what everybody's bias is because, I mean, that's that's just the thing about history, right? Like you see something that interests you, something happens and it prompts you to investigate further and sort of curate your own narrative. And I think my point here is that there's actually no linear narrative on abortion. Mm -hmm. There's a continual renegotiation through history of identity theory, practice. Um, so I just wanted to take a minute to stress that those historical narratives reflect the circumstances of the historians studying them, I True. guess, including today. Everybody has an opinion, man. Exactly. And if you want to read about two authors who use the exact same sources to argue two wildly different views, <laughs> I recommend it's called Power and Reproduction of History, 20th Century Histories of Abortion in the Ancient Mediterranean World. And that was published um, in 2021. By Tara Baldrick Moroni. So actually, one of my one of my takeaways, particularly looking at the ancient, medieval, and fairly recent U.S. side by side, is that the criminalization of abortion, the way that we know it today, like the the actual restriction of access to abortion as a healthcare decision that you can make for yourself, is something that's I guess for me fairly recent like it's not as long-standing as as i would have thought 
mm-hmm. given how hot the debates have been. Yeah. And I think the other thing that, I don't know, I think we're both skirting it a little bit because it's such a big discussion is like just the why, like why people have this super strong held opinion on this topic and why there is so much literature about it, why there was so much discussion, why you can find so many conversations about it. Like it, even if it was acceptable or not acceptable, people have always talked about it. And the thing that I don't talk about in my section, I think because it would just require so much time, is the historical and social and religious foundations of like why people even bother putting so much energy <laughs> into making it illegal and to preventing people from accessing yeah. this healthcare service. Yeah, and I think I shy away from those discussions just because... I sort of like balk at the idea of having to justify why someone like me should have that basic (laughs) human right. Yeah. It's like I have to justify my experience and not just my experience, my my existence (laughs) to someone who doesn't think I should be able to uh, make decisions about whether or not I have children, which is like the most personal thing <laughs> in anybody's life like it's it's a life-changing I totally body-changing emotional upheaval and like we were having this conversation not that long ago right like it is the most um the most personal topics that people seem to have the least problem telling us what to think about yes like why do you have why does why I don't understand why the like abortion and reproductive health care essentially as population control is an element that you like briefly touched on and I too will briefly touch on but it's just like you were talking about it as being coercive for women's bodies about um, how it affected enslaved peoples and ownership but it, like in colonial nations it was a method of making sure that there were like healthy populations to maintain the resource stealing that they were doing or like like it's always been a tool of control, whether it be forced sterilization or whether it be making abortions illegal. Yeah. It's been about a lot more than saving a fetus. Like <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, I also one one bit that I just like didn't want to get into because I thought you would talk about it. Part of the argument of this National Geographic article I was reading about the US, abortion in the US, uh, was that one of the motivations of the the lobby group of physicians was the emancipation of slaves and the wanting to ensure that the, I guess, white birth rate continued to be um, continued to be mm. populating their country with quote unquote desirable <laughs> demographics. So sort of to they were almost thinking of it as like a baby race, which is so white supremacist cuckoo banana pants. But totally. also still yeah. continues to be true. Like, it sounds almost like conspiracy theory Ask, We need white women to keep having babies. And we also need to continue to have a source of cheap labor. And yeah, yeah we don't really care if people die in service of that. Because the people who are more likely to have access to information and resources about their own sexual health and prevent unwanted pregnancies... Um, are probably going to be people with higher education levels and a little bit more wealth at their disposal, access to healthcare services, health insurance, things like that. And the people who uh, are going to have unwanted pregnancies that they can't get an abortion for 
are people in a very different socioeconomic status. Um, and if those people try and have illegal abortions and or unsafe abortions and they die, well, that's not really a loss because they'll be replaced by, you know, some more cheap labor. Like that is there. It's there. You know, sometimes these conservative people even say that quiet part out loud. <laughs> like, it's just really messed more up. And more and more so these days. Yeah. But it's like it's a crazy it's, thing to say. It sounds crazy. But I think that's a very real thing. <laughs> Anywho, yeah. let's talk about that in the modern day then and what that looks like Great. since we're on that Great. Track. I'm sure I'm sure that'll be less upsetting for everybody. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not going to be less upsetting. <laughs> I didn't really dive into the debate behind it, but more the outcomes of these kinds of things because I think there's just like so much to talk about. It will surprise nobody who knows me and this podcast that I obviously want to take a global health stance on this given the impetus for us you know choosing this topic being essentially the cancellation of roe v wade with the dobbs amendment or dobbs whatever the hell roe v wade's no more abortion is no longer a constitutional right that was the uh, inspiration for this episode so i'm going to talk about sort of how that came about and what that means in the united states but also through the lens of like the global ramifications of that because i think it is not really talked about so much so basically saying here that this doesn't just affect people who might want to get abortions it really affects a lot of us in ways that we might not even be able to see on the surface and i think it's really important sort of has this like butterfly effect for millions of people and i'm gonna make it as humorous and depressing and therefore on brand as possible i am going to be talking about legislation though so there is sort of a element to it the original shitty u.s policy that's tied to abortion sort of as a direct string from the 1800s that you were talking about is something called the helms amendment so this amendment was passed after the original roe v wade ruling in 1973 so basically it was like a trigger reaction like okay well you got your way well we're gonna limit it and there were some domestic and international repercussions the international being called the Helms Amendment. So this amendment in the U.S. limited foreign abortion funding, and the focus was on the prevention of abortion as a method of family planning. Uh, so the underlying rhetoric there, of course, being this like fucked up thing that still happens today, where people envision like these sexually active women roaming the streets, having sex willy nilly, not using contraception, getting pregnant and just getting hundreds of abortions and using that as their method of family planning. That is not a thing. And let's be clear, that is lawmakers being misogynistic and taking their prejudices and making them into law. Just, yeah, and yeah. like taking puritanical views of sex and applying them to people uh, in like a weird, fucked up way. It's also just not rooted in reality. It's just a belief about what yeah, women are like. Yeah, it's just like a random thing they've decided about like these non-Christian women going around being sexually promiscuous. This uh, 1973 amendment is actually still in place. This is still a thing that we operate under. And the way it is interpreted, like the language of that, the way it's interpreted by organizations like USAID, which, by the way, I'm going to refer to that a lot here. It is the United States International Assistance Organization. So any like global aid that is given comes from USAID, just a point of interest. So the way organizations like USAID think about this amendment or interpret it 
is that abortion can be funded if it is for rape, incest, or to save the life of a woman. And again, that's rhetoric we still hear a lot. But that is highly restrictive, right? Like that eliminates a lot of choice. And that still puts the burden of proof on women. Yeah, very much so. Like how do you prove people still have trouble, you know, placing rape accusations, period. Never mind pregnancy. Anyway. This obviously creates a really high initial barrier for safe abortion access. And it essentially set the whole movement back. And like you, Angel, I was very surprised to see that prior to a certain point of time, people were like pretty okay with this um and so there were a lot of like very vocal voices that were pro-abortion and like pushing um abortion legislation to make it legal in countries around the world and things like this this like trigger response to roe v wade really set that back like really stopped a lot of positive things that were happening there is still an ongoing movement to try and repeal the helms amendment Um, a new bill was put forward months ago that has not passed yet so basically everything is super fucked up this helms amendment which again still in place is the direct precursor to the bigger chunk of thing that i'm going to talk about which is the global gag rule we in the united states have a government policy it is colloquially referred to as the global gag rule it's officially called the mexico city policy or the protecting life in global health assistance policy barf huge barf yeah your face says you it can't off. see me but i'm making a really <laughs> ugly face <laughs> she is disgusted and appalled as should we all be so policy was developed by good old ronald reagan in 1984 the mexico city policy was named after the location of the united nations conference on population and development I couldn't figure out who came up with the name global gag rule. I was trying to figure out where we got that from. But I do think it's fitting because it both prohibits free speech and action, gags people, and it also makes me want to vomit. So it really works on <laughs> more than one level. So what what is this thing? The policy states that federal funding, so USAID funding, cannot be used by NGOs to provide abortion services. So any form of abortion service ranging from counseling to the actual provision of abortion services to activism to decriminalize abortion you cannot use usaid money towards that now that might not seem like a big deal but what that means in practice is that any organization that receives united states funding of any kind and provides a broad range of necessary healthcare services could lose all the money that they get to provide health care if they provide abortion services. So if you are a women's health clinic and you are providing contraception, counseling, HIV testing, and you also provide abortion counseling and they find out, you would just lose all of your money and you would have to shut down. So very prohibitive. That's like the core of the global gag rule. Now here's where it gets worse. Remember I was texting you about expanded global gag rule? Let's get into it. So our dear former president, Donald Trump, amongst all the rest of the damage that he caused, actually extended the gag rule to go beyond what I just described. So anybody that's receiving U.S. aid for family planning was who was covered under the normal one. So if it's anything to do with like sexual health, family planning. Now, or rather under him, the expanded global gag rule applied to all global health assistance, period. 
So that covered funding for HIV AIDS, malaria, water and sanitation, tuberculosis, anything that the United States gives global assistance for. So previously, on a year to year, the global gag rule and its like original form affected about $600 million worth of funding. With the expanded global gag rule, it affected $12 billion worth of funding. It's insane. And that wasn't enough. They kept going. Then they added an amendment to it that said, if you're an international uh, NGO and you are getting US funding of any kind, you cannot even work with another agency that is providing abortion services. So then these are like sub-agencies, like let's say a community partner. They are also being deprived of funding from the larger organization that is getting direct U.S. funding because that agency can no longer work with them. So not only is that highly restrictive, sorry, I should clarify, they can work with them, but only if they stop offering abortion services, period. So not only is that incredibly restrictive, it pushes the opinions of abortion on places where they might totally be different. It withholds necessary funding in spaces beyond family planning services. Uh, It forces abortion underground to become illegal. It enforces Western ideals of sexual health. It restricts freedom of speech and action, right? Like these organizations who are not receiving direct funding at all now have to align with those values. And in places where abortion is literally 100% legal, it makes it less accessible because they don't have the infrastructure to provide it anymore. Like, obviously, that was the, the point, but uh, it is really messed up. And of course, the only outcome of that is that people died. So, yeah, yeah. that's what the expanded global gag rule is. And it also is worth mentioning that the United States is the single largest giver of foreign aid in the entire world. So you can imagine the immensity of what happens when the global gag rule is in effect. We're still finding out what the impact of the expanded global gag rule was because it really hasn't been that long. Um, We know that it deeply marred ongoing sexual health networks and partnerships. So like groups that were working together to provide necessary healthcare services have been shattered because either they wanted to continue delivering the service or they had to stop delivering it and it like messed up these like group networks. Before there were community-based organizations doing this like really great work that could have gotten secondary funding. Now those would have had to shut down. Um, We've seen changes in countries' advocacy and public opinion and policy to align with what the U.S. is requiring because they need that money. (laughs) It's a, a lot of money. There's been a resurgence of conservative groups who feel like they've been given permission to be really vocal about this. That's happened in the United States and Canada as well, obviously. The ability and the infrastructure that organizations and nations have access to to provide safe abortions have been dramatically limited. I have not been able to find specific data on the like like specifically the impact the expanded global gag rule had on maternal health outcomes themselves, but it's always true that the less access to abortion you have, the more illegal, unsafe abortions you have access to. Like, that's a hard and fast rule. But we have seen, because of the effect this had on family planning services and other health services, 
that there was a huge expansion in sexually transmitted infections and other like sexual health outcomes, especially HIV AIDS, because so many family planning services lost so much money that they weren't able to provide adequate services. Fantastic. So um, legacies of Donald Trump. They only continue. On going. Yes. And what I'm, would it take to get that to get that um, either reduced or repealed? A really hard question, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that. So the only good, I say good hesitantly, uh, you can see how many question marks there are in my notes, um, but the only good thing about this rule is that it's basically turned on and off by whatever president is in power. So typically, Democrats turn it off and Republicans turn it on. Um, so Trump obviously was like, yes, gag rule is a go and let's make it bigger. Biden got into office and was like, no more gag rule. Thank you very much. But the problem is like U.S. government agencies don't just like, boop, turn around and everything is better, right? Those networks that were dissolved don't automatically come back again. And of course, it's four years. Like, is there any guarantee that the next president would be a Democrat and would keep it off. So like, what do you do? Do you rely on funding that you don't know is going to be there? So I had the same question as you basically. And there were a lot of factors. I don't know. I haven't had like taken the time to explore them and um, what this all means. So I explored them here. One element of this is that you don't just like get money from USAID, <laughs> right? Like you have mm -hmm. to write applications. You have to fill certain requirements you have to be able to prove like they have to do due diligence and then you like send the money like that in and of itself takes time like months maybe even years depending on how big the funding is um and like yeah that, there's just that institutional element like are you even willing to change your operations that dramatically every four years is it even worth your while so kind of like the biggest damage of this is that if people have already adjusted to align with this like hyper restrictive policy it's probably just not worth it for them to undo that work yeah because in terms of strategic planning like four four years is nothing no like you're not and gonna, it's not even you're, gonna really you're not gonna be years. planning your programs for yeah it's more like what two and a half maybe yeah. three so by the time you get the decision after application exactly and there's like this sort of just such an unfair element to this where when trump changed the policy and put it into action you had to just stop delivering services otherwise you would lose your money like that didn't take time you just had to stop done that was out and you also had to tell everybody who's coming to your facility for the next four years we don't do that that's illegal we're not allowed that's not covered under what we can deliver so first of all reinstating the funding and your ability to do that service that takes a lot longer but it takes even longer to go out into your community and tell them oh that thing that we yeah. told you we couldn't do and isn't allowed for four years surprise it is and frankly most of those <laughs> agencies that were eligible for that funding they don't even know if it's allowed like it's just all so yeah. confusing <laughs> So it's just not to mention like because like offering the service is one thing, but actually getting people to use it is another. And exactly. once you've cut off that service at least once, like don't you just lose community trust? Yeah, exactly. And it's sending a message where like 
if people were already uncertain about like a stigma or a religious element or a health element having misinformation about this particular healthcare service, um, if you would lose your money for even talking about abortion, then they certainly haven't gotten a changed perspective over the last few years. Definitely. Yeah. So like flipping the rule is one thing. And that's sort of what I was saying at the beginning is that like the legality of it is like just the start because there's so much work that has to go into it. And if you were a really small agency with very limited funding and you were providing other vital services, would your first instinct be to try and undo that? And I think for a lot of places, the answer is no, regardless of how important they think it is. So that's neat. The other thing that I've actually been wondering a lot for the last few months is now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned and abortion is technically not a constitutional right in the U.S., is any of this relevant? Like, can the U.S. deliver international assistance funding for abortion services if we can't do it at home? <laughs> like, are you allowed even? And mm. I do think, for the record, that the important distinction here is that it's not abortion is not illegal everywhere in the United States. It is not a protected constitutional right, which means that states can make it illegal. But like, for example, in New York, it's still legal to get an abortion. You can access that as a family planning service. It's just not a protected constitutional right. I think that was a distinct like line because in my head I was like, yeah, abortion's illegal. Can we fund something that's illegal somewhere else? But it's not. Anyway, as you may have yeah. guessed. But it's kind of like drawing that parallel between what we just talked about abroad and what's going on at home. Like, if you're not sure that you're right to an abortion is going to be protected does that affect how and when and whether you're going to even consider that choice for yourself like doesn't it somehow reduce trust in a procedure that is actually 100%. safer than the pregnancy itself 100 percent, and that's not common knowledge and i think that like i think the knowledge translation element of it that you're touching on is the most important part and that was that's actually like basically what i was going to say here is that so after significant research, it became apparent that the ruling, like the Supreme Court ruling, does not affect USAID family planning funding. Great news. They can still give international assistance, even though it is limited by the Helms Amendment. They can still give international assistance for abortion services. But basically everybody is saying, USAID leadership, Biden, somebody, can you come out and make a clear statement that's like visible on your website or something that no, passing Dobbs, canceling Roe v. Wade does not remove the ability of USAID to continue abortion funding. Because if you are abroad and you're trying to figure out what the hell is going on, that is not evident. Like, it's really yeah. not clear. I mean, you'd think that over the past few years, governments would have gotten better at messaging in general but mostly messaging about public health i know and i do think that they're hedging their bets a bit frankly it's also kind of in a weird way it's kind of like a moot point like there's obviously beyond the legality and how it affects financing like what you just said about people not having institutional trust or like what it makes them think about abortions if it's not a protected right like it's still you know dobbs amendment is still going to have a huge global impact on the way people think about and provide abortion services, kind of regardless of USAID funding. Yeah, I mean, because like our, our beliefs about our health aren't always rooted in the logical so much as the emotional and psychological, right? Like you can know all the facts about something, but if it seems risky, you might still think twice. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And the the louder, I think, the louder voices, the stronger rhetoric, absolutely belongs with the anti-abortion people. Like the the sheer drama of the way that they talk about this. Like, yeah, abortion as healthcare, great, catchy, whatever. You can know that and have somebody hold a giant poster of like a fake photoshopped bloody fetus and tell you that life begins at conception and you can't prove otherwise because the concept of life is philosophical and how do you actually know that you're right? And that'll freak you out. That's scary. And you've got people talking about like, oh, Planned Parenthood has like got fetuses in jars. And like, I mean, the rhetoric is so extreme and so crazy but that is also what makes people listen like people are not necessarily as swayed by like calm logical argument (laughs) i mean it's compelling in the same way that like a horror movie is compelling yeah exactly you know like it, it really knows how to um how to scare the shit out of you yeah it's scary and it especially if you're a person of faith like i think this threat of like hell Like it doesn't worry. It doesn't work for me. But like, if you're worried about that, people do weird stuff to avoid it. Anyway, so obviously, I took that approach of like U.S. U.S. policymaking and its ramifications on global health outcomes. I didn't even touch on domestic legislation there. But you know, recap of what everyone's seen in the news: abortion has been like highly restricted, made illegal in a lot of places. Women are being surveilled through their phones. Children are being forced to have children of their own. People are dying. And as we mentioned earlier, those who suffer the most are the people who are already the most vulnerable in society. Abortion is health care. It's sexual health care. It's normal health care. And I don't know. I think that this like whole story is just evidence that you don't need to be a person who's getting an abortion to have this affect you. And I think it's easy mm-hmm. for a lot of people to think otherwise i also just had a bunch of random notes here that i left when i was thinking about this like four months ago when we started talking about it and i'm just gonna read them even though they're not connected to anything uh the first one just said we need culturally competent reproductive care um yep i still agree with that yes great Uh, true this bullet just says reproductive justice which uh it's not really a thought but it's good. It's good. If you haven't read about the principles of reproductive justice, I would recommend it. Um, this just says women's rights. They are more than just a womb, which again, I do stand by that sentiment. And then finally, a thought that I'd been thinking about a lot, like a lot in light of the ruling was if your rights, like your rights of personhood are, have to be rooted in history to exist What this judgment says is that if you didn't always historically have rights, then you do not deserve them now. And I think we need to spend a lot of time thinking about who that's going to impact and how. Basically, what I'm saying is if you're not a white landowning Protestant male, you're fucked. So. Amen. Yeah. I would say this is both very sad and very long already. So I just want to close by talking about a few healthcare heroes who are doing the good work. So one that I think is just like kind of the craziest, coolest thing is this organization called Women on the Waves. And the principle is very like, I don't know if you've seen Arrested Development, but there's a like international sea law component to it that is carried out here, but they do a much better job. Anyway, they go in large boats from the Netherlands to places where abortion is illegal. 
and they put down anchor outside of the territorial waters of that nation so no way international waters where law doesn't apply so the only law on the boat is like the home nation they're dutch abortion is fully legal in the netherlands so when the ship is near that country people are alerted they can make appointments and they can go to the boat to access uh safe abortion services (laughs) oh my god they're like reproductive rights pirates it's amazing (laughs) um so on their website it has like dates and times when they've done that i don't think they've done it super recently but still love the the principle the other thing that they did and again i think this only happened once or twice but it's still incredible is they ran an abortion robot campaign so basically the person who was operating like they're just speaking of laws they're just taking advantage of all the like legal loopholes possible so the person operating the robot was in the netherlands where abortion is legal and the robot has like a little camera on it and they'll go to a person they'll deliver abortion counseling services once that is complete the robot delivers the pills to the person in the country where the abortion is illegal the person operating the robot is in a place where it's legal <laughs> and the robot can't be charged under law because it's a robot. <laughs> that's that's just telehealth at its finest. So they did that I in 2017, that. I think in Northern Ireland and Poland. And I think it was just, I don't, yeah. I don't think it was like a stunt, but I don't think it's like a great way. Like it's not going to replace healthcare services, but it's still an incredible story. But maybe it's some of that like movie magic, yeah. That the anti-choice people are channeling, and we're we just need to inject some drama into this narrative and right? make it really really epic, so that more people get on board with fundamental human rights. That'd be nice. Yeah. Um. And that would be really nice. Oh my god, my I'm so bummed out. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't cry though. I really uh... thought I was gonna cry. Okay. A couple others. So one we have to shout out just the National Network of Abortion Funds in the United States. So their collection of providers who work to provide resources to make abortion more accessible, uh, especially in states where it's been made illegal or they're highly restrictive. Um, They're so important, especially now when so many people have such limited access. Um, If you have the desire or the ability to donate, I would suggest some local abortion funds in the United States if this is an issue of importance to you. And... I also, this is like not very specific, but I want, I think amongst these healthcare heroes, we have to include every single person across the world who continued to provide abortion services when they were threatened and undermined by the state and by radical conservative protesters. And also every person who signed up to go to an abortion clinic to guide people safely through horrible hecklers who were trying to convince them to do otherwise and I think I have friends who have done that and I like think if if there's nothing else we can do it's to just like be human to people <laughs> and they are heroes and that is the end of my story about abortion that was incredible you're incredible I've started listening to this great podcast called You're Wrong About. Recently, um, they did a whole episode that was just listeners who had called in with their abortion stories. And it was just like a full hour of, of hearing from, from the listeners from all over the world about their experience and how it went and how they're feeling now. It was quite moving and 
it's really nice, I think, when you're, uh, well, nice. I think it's important when we're having these discussions to um, sometimes take a step back and think about the individuals who are making these decisions. Totally. And having these experiences. And yeah, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a person. There are many, many people at the heart of these debates. There's just people out there who are fighting for our rights to personhood. And, yeah. and I mean, a legal safe abortion can change someone's life yeah. completely change many lives and actually save their life yep. and you know we haven't even talked about like the foster care system and, like, <laughs> which we're not going to because talk about bummers but like if there's one takeaway for both of us is that we believe passionately strongly about abortion as healthcare and women's right to make choices about her own body and that should be a fundamental right and it's really scary when you don't feel like you have that yeah it definitely feels at risk like it feels very precarious right now yep and like you said at the beginning like i don't it's almost something i don't want to engage in a debate about because if i have a discussion with you about if it's a right or not i'm giving some like credence to this idea that I might not have rights. <laughs> like I'm allowing that to like yeah. be real, which it's simply not. Anyway, should we uh, transition into hoorays? Yeah. Do you want to go first? Do you have a good one? Speaking of reproductive health care, I have a good one. My hooray was my recent um, doctor's appointment. Yay. About a period-related matter, and you remember in the hysteria episode, we were complaining about how as soon as you mention your your uterus or your vagina, uh, the doctor just like completely switches <laughs> off and and wants to like get you out of that office as soon as possible. Well, I went in there with a plan. I was like, "This is what I'm feeling. This is what I want. We'll have a discussion, but like, this is what I require from you." And they were like, "Okay, yes, advocacy," and everything was fine. Amazing. Congratulations. And to be honest, this is something that I never really felt comfortable doing, like advocating for myself at the doctor's office. I'm the kind of person who, uh, when faced with resistance, my first impulse is to be like, oh, I must be wrong. Like <laughs> somebody else always knows better, but I've been training myself to not do that. And partly that's been through discussions with you. So thank you for that. I'm very happy for you. May you continue to have Yay great for Maya. success. And my other hooray is also health-related. I am able to work again for the first time in, like, six months. Huge. I'm getting back into my doctorate. It was, like, six months off the doctorate, which was really, really psychologically difficult. And now I'm able to. And we've researched and recorded a podcast episode, which means we get to hang out a lot more. Yay. Um, and my nails are bright yellow, which is the final hooray. That's a good list. And I'm really happy. It's very good list. Yeah. That, those also all make me happy. Mine are, I turned 30 this month, which is crazy. And I think that's a hurry. Welcome to the <laughs> club, friend. I hear it's a good decade, so I'm excited. And in celebration of that, I got a haircut. Feels very fresh and fun. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> oh, a nice time. Should we close this sucker down? Yeah. Shut her down. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye, miss Bye. you. Bye, missed you too. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angelique and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya.